Welcome to the 220th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Lynn Rosen, author of the novel, A Man of Genius. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Lynn Rosen, author of A Man of Genius. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great. Well, can you read the first two or three pages of A Man of Genius? I'd be glad to. Uh, The excerpt I'm reading is from the prologue. I admit I'm a misanthrope. My disdain for people is bred of age and experience and a tinge of self-deprecation. Having finally arrived at that stage in life called retirement, I claim the right to a Garbo-esque attitude. I want to be left alone. I fought the battles of life and won most of them. I'm what might be regarded as a successful man, all of which has earned me the right to sit in a corner and meditate on what? On whatever I damn please. That's just what I was about, only it wasn't a corner. It was a deserted veranda I sat on at a lodge in the Canadian Rockies. I was enjoying my solitude, resting in the tranquility of the dimming light, vaguely aware of the sounds of birds and the rustle of leaves, musing on nothing in particular, minus the angst of worrying about tomorrow or ruining events of the past. Life was as it was, is as it is, and was going to be whatever. Adding to my successful disengagement was the fact that I had finally arrived at a welcome point where I accepted the fact that whatever came next in my life, I cared little or nothing about. Little wonder that I was more than annoyed when I heard footsteps approaching. She came through the terrace door, and I stood and stood behind my chair. Good evening, Mr. Dollinger. I guess you prefer this to what's going on inside. Her tone was whimsical. Quite right. I have little interest in a corporate retreat. I find the word retreat, as applied to these planning sessions, nonsensical. Why would a corporation plan to retreat? A bad descriptor. What's more, I have little or nothing to do with a corporation's future, so why be involved in its planning? I'm aware that I'm here merely as a trophy, a retired founding partner who's added considerably to the firm's coffers, merely a symbol of can and what should be accomplished. No, I'll leave the gaming to the youngsters. She laughed. That's more than I had the pleasure of hearing from you in some time. Uninvited, she settled into the seat next to me. I turned to face her, curious to see what she'd become. She wore a dark parker, and she tucked a blanket around her legs and over her boots, so that she seemed to merge with the darkness. Yet the early evening light, blending with the light that sifted through the terrace doors, allowed me a dimmed view of her face. She was many years younger than I, and though I'm a confirmed bachelor, I've always enjoyed the sight of a handsome woman. She surely was that. She sat erect in the chaise and looked outwardly with a steady stare, simply sat and waited. I was taken by her assured attitude, so different from when we first met and some years earlier, 
at the time of her interview at the law firm of Batten, Dollinger, Mills, and Dupre, a firm I had founded. That was in the mid-80s when she was 29 and fresh out of law school. She came with a strong recommendation from my law school roommate, a renowned misogynist, which made me curious about her. Though there was nothing exceptional in her appearance, I clearly remembered what she had looked like. She presented a picture of propriety and confidence. She wore the attire of a professional woman, the mannish suit with the modest skirt length, the Hathaway shirt, the plain, shiny pumps with moderate heels, the simple touch of pearl jewelry, the subtle cosmetics. Her face was oval. Her shining brown hair was drawn back in a bun. She was long-legged and probably shapely beneath her attire. Clearly, Carlisle Richards was eager to be a team player and therefore willing to blend in. She became an associate in the firm's mergers and acquisitions division. She didn't share the same area of specialization, and I lost contact with her except for the occasional hallway or elevator encounter. But somewhere I had stored the memory of Carlisle Richards, and I called upon it two years after our initial meeting upon the death of the famed architect, Samuel Grafton Hall. I'd known Samuel for many years. I greatly admired his work, and I took pride in the belief that we were friends. He was also one of my most eminent clients, so I was particularly concerned about the stipulation in his will that required special attention. I looked up Carlisle's current assignment status, found her to be reasonably available, and thinking the assignment might be advanced by a woman's touch called on her services. And then we met again, many years later, on the veranda of a lodge in the Canadian Rockies during a corporate retreat. With no assistance from me, she had become a partner in the firm. She sat next to me, no longer shy. Her unwavering silence commanded my attention, and I capitulated. Tell me, are you enjoying the occasion, I asked, with feigned interest in her answer. No more than you, she replied. I've arrived where I want to be. The corporate challenges are behind me, too. No need to pay those dues again. But you've accomplished so much. She laughed slightly. That first rush of pride in what I'd uh, achieved is long gone. Truth is that what I enjoyed most about my success was bringing it home. After all, what first-generation professional female from a middle-class background with two successful older brothers wouldn't relish rushing home to announce that she'd been named partner in one of the most prestigious law firms in the country. She awakened memories of my own career and the choices I had made. It seemed obvious from a meteoric rise that we were both spurred by the sirens of ambition. How, I wondered, had she gotten from her past to her present? How much had she conceded? Before I could find a comfortable way to pry into her life, she asked, How well did you know Samuel Grafton Hall? Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about A Man of Genius yet, how would you describe your novel? Well, I would describe it as telling a story about an architect, Samuel Grafton Hall, who is a man of genius. And his life and the elements of his genius. 
But the main point about the character is that he demands reverence. And he is a man who is more than slightly flawed. He's a misanthrope. He's a womanizer. He uh, leaves a swarth behind him of people who are hurt by his actions. And yet he has very little moral uh, fiber in him himself. The novel, because of what it deals with in this character and the reactions of the uh other characters towards this man, I hope raises questions about we, what we do owe to those that we set up as idols. What are the criterias that we apply to those decisions about who we trust? And the question then turns upon our own set of values and our own systems of moral obligation. Those sets of criteria that we set really define us. And I hope that the reader is pushed to that level. And finally, to the question in the plot line, because it's an open-ended conclusion, it's not a conclusion, uh, to the point of saying, what would I have done? Great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing A Man of Genius? Indeed, I do. Because anything I write, and though I haven't published that much, I have drawers full of manuscripts of novels. And uh, they all come from a memory. And the memory, of course, has been changed in time at my age. Uh, you know, memory's dim. But they have been taken on new forms. But all of the memories that uh, are the impetus for the stories that I write about are something that deals, leads me to think about more universal questions. And that's what pushes me to the writing. This particular book had a backstory, has a backstory to it. And it goes back to 1949 or 1950, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. And I had seen and visited some of the prairie houses in Chicago that Frank Lloyd Wright had designed. And I also had visited some of the houses in the Madison area that he had designed. And I found a way to get even closer to his work at what I considered the very heart of his uh, work area, which was Taliesin, in Spring Green, and it was about 100 miles outside of Madison. And it wasn't easy to get there because you couldn't rent cars in those days, and I didn't have a driver's license. So I did manage to get some uh, friends of mine to go with me, and we went off to Taliesin. When we arrived there, we discovered that it wasn't a day that there were going to be any tours, and so there was no access to the house. And we started squabbling over uh, who had made the mistake of selecting this day. Now, none of my friends were the least bit interested in Frank Lloyd Wright or his work, but I had tempted them to go because I had said that there were apprentices in the studios working there, all men, all bereft of any female companionship, and would be delighted to see some co-eds from the university. And that was their temptation to go there. And there we stood, right in front of the door of Taliesin, arguing. And this woman came up to us and uh, 
asked what was the problem, and we told her. And she introduced herself as Mrs. Frank Lloyd Wright. And she invited us into the house. I managed to uh, get the uh, my friends an invitation to look at the studios and the projects that these young men were working on. And at the same time, I managed to ask for a guided tour uh, by Mrs. Wright. And she was very nice about it and said she'd be glad to. And so off they went and off I went. When I finished the tour... Mrs. Wright, her name is Algabana Wright, and she was Frank Lloyd Wright's third wife. Uh, she invited me to have some tea with her, and we sat in this great room at Taliesin. And she asked me what I thought of what I had seen. And I said, I thought it was absolutely beautiful, but I would never want to live there. And uh, we continued the conversation, and all through this discussion, there was a question on the tip of my tongue that I had to keep pushing back because I knew once out, everything was over. And the question I wanted to ask was, Mrs. Wright, did your husband kill his mistress? Because there had been a mistress, there was this Mawa Cheney and her children who had lived at Taliesin with Frank Lloyd Wright and been murdered in a horrific way. All murders are horrific. But this was particularly so because it was done by a hacksaw, mother and children. And it was done by a servant who later lit a fire to uh, Taliesin and completely destroyed it. At the time, though Frank Lloyd Wright was at the Chicago exhibition, people thought that he had set up uh, the situation and the murder because he had, uh, everyone knew about his liaison with Mawa Cheney, and he was, uh, there was a question of whether he was going to go to jail for it, because in those days, morality issues were, you know, in front and center, and he was losing all his clients, and so he was in a dreadful position because of this relationship, and would have done very well if he could have ended it. And so there it lingered, and I never asked the question. But this, the question stayed with me, and the incident stayed with me. And then I began to wonder, why? Why is it so important? Why does it stay with me? And that's how we come back around to what I had said before about uh, the novel itself, because it asks an open-ended question. And that open-ended question has no uh, particular time relative to its importance. It's as important today as it was then because we have so many idols today that we give our complete faith in people in media, people in, re in religious organizations, people that we are willing to sit at the feet of and adore and forgive because everyone's imperfect. And that led me finally to a man of genius. But it is not that story because years have changed the story, and my thinking about it has changed, and the center point of the story has shifted with, as I begin to raise questions. Well, that's a great backstory. <laughs> great. Well, um, that that's great insight in, into the novel. So um, I know that you taught literature and theater at the University of Rochester. What led you to teaching? 
Oh, I've led a life of doing very many things, and I, it hasn't been one of those that you could say uh, was a carpe diem life. It was probably the other way around. The day uh, caught me and led <laughs> me someplace, and all changes were not done with uh, thoughtfulness. And getting, uh, I have uh, a doctorate, and Getting that doctorate was something that uh, was not what I expected to do. I have two master's doctorate, little of which uh, adds up to very much. But it was during the time that I had uh, completed two masters, and it was a time in uh, academe where because of several circumstances nationally and internationally, there was a need for uh, university teachers. And I had the degrees for it, and I was completing my dissertation. But I wasn't completing my dissertation in an area I wanted to complete it in because of uh, attitudes towards women at that time. And so what I wanted to do was uh, to accomplish a doctorate in the Gothic novel. Having completed two masters, I went and applied to the university for a doctoral program. And I was told that I couldn't be accepted. I wanted a full-time program. I had two children. I had other obligations. I just wanted to do it and then to become involved in the study of the Gothic novel. But I was told that I couldn't be accepted as a full-time uh, a student because of my sex. This was before Title IX, and so you could say those things. And if I insisted on uh, being considered that they would sit me under the seminar table. Now, that's a quote that I remember. That is a quote. And so uh, that I will sit you under the seminar table. There was a chairman of the Department of Education at the time who had come out of a very prestigious other uh, institution, uh, university, who heard about this and was so incensed that invited me to join a program in his department, which happened to be education. And we concocted a degree in higher education. At the time I completed that degree in higher education, there were only six people in the country whose area of interest was higher education. And then I was, uh, they asked me to join the faculty at the University of Rochester at the Eastman School of Music, and I became a uh, assistant professor at uh, of humanities at the Eastman School in the division of humanities. Great. Well, I know that earlier you said you had a drawer full of manuscripts you've written over the years. What advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? I think that from my own experience, I think that it's the joy of writing. And sometimes people think about what's going to happen afterwards, the publishing of the novel, the finishing of the novel. You may never finish the novel. The, uh, the writing of A Man of Genius took a span of 15 years. Nine of them were in the actual writing. I think that it is the idea that has to compel you to write. And if you don't have this sense of compulsion, that's something that intrigues you, that's something you want to put down and figure out, that there's something that carries, again, the question that you shouldn't do it. 
because not in the form of a novel. You know, you can do other things mm-hmm. with it, but I think that there are, uh, a novel is a different kind of a commitment in the intricacies of this expanded story. And so I think that don't think about the end, think about the process and really be committed to whatever you are addressing in the novel. Great. Well, are there books and authors that you've read recently that impressed you and that you would recommend? You know, I must tell you that I would recommend going back to the people that uh, set the course for most of us. For instance, I think that one of the greatest novels ever written is Tristram Shandy. Now, I know that puts me in an odd category, but if you want to understand novel writing, go back to Tristram Shandy and think about it and think about the, uh, uh, how one works through time, think about plot line, and certainly in the Gothic novel, I go back to and Radcliffe, and those, so I am not a modernist in any way. I do go back and read and read and read. I think that there are writers, you, you know, particularly Allende and people like that, that, you know, that really are excellent novelists in certain genres, and certainly magical realism and those aspects. She is uh, a really impressive novelist. And so at times, uh, you know, are others. Uh, but I do think that, um, that one should go back and look at early novels. So few of them are reread. Great. Well, are you working on another novel now? I am. And by working on it, it begins in my head. <laughs> and uh, it's something, again, that happened to me and happened to me uh, many, many years ago and then again in the late 1950s. It stayed with me, and I have no idea why it stayed there. It didn't take more than five minutes for the occurrence to happen and be over with, but it never left me. And uh, and I'm beginning to think that it has something in it that would be appealing to work on. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Lynn Rosen, author of A Man of Genius. The novel is available in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Lynn, thanks for doing this interview. It was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Great. Um, So this will go up in the next two or three weeks. I have um, a couple in the queue before you, um, and I'll just let your publicist know when it goes up, and there will be a link to it. That's great. Thank you so much. And I hope it works out well. And um, uh, I really enjoyed doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Have a good day. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.